0: Hollywood is rated LGBT radio starring your host, Rob Watson. Welcome to this installment of rated LGBT radio. And yes, I am your host, Rob Watson. Today we have a what I think is going to be a really wonderful show. Um, one of the fun things about sitting in my chair here is I get to talk to all sorts of fascinating people from we've had actors, we've had singers, we've had uh, reality stars, we've had um, authors, we've had activists, we've had lawyers, we've had um, kids fighting for their identities, Um And one of my favorite groups, actually, to talk to are the documentary filmmakers. And one of the reasons they're my favorite is because I think we sit in the similar position. We both are storytellers. We bring everybody else's story to light. We are observers, and that's what we do. And that's what I do with this podcast and what I do when I write um, for public writing, like for the Los Angeles Blade magazine, which um, I write for frequently and have an author page there in case you're interested. Um, Today's show is, again, one of um, a documentary wonder person. Um, Vivian Kleinman is our guest. She is a uh, director, producer, filmmaker of documentaries Her latest is called No Straight Lines, The Rise of Queer Comics. Um, Vivian is a Peabody Award winner. She's an Emmy nominee. Um, And Straight Lines is a unique documentary. Um, It's being shown on PBS, so I'm pretty sure you can catch it there. But uh, the film shows how comic books and strips have provided a unique uncensored window into LGBTQ lives from the 1970s onward. Um, she uh, features a series of really profoundly um, notary uh, artists in the genre from Alison uh, Bechdel, Rupert Kinnard, Howard Cruz, Jen Camper, and Mary Wings, um, each are featured in the documentary. Um, But it's a fascinating walk through not only the genre of comic strips, comic books, and graphic novels, but also the chronicling of LGBTQ life and history and experience um, through the eyes and pens of these artists. So uh, we're going to talk to Vivian about that, uh, about her career, and uh, what what that has um, brought out in this film, no straight lines. Before we get to Vivian, I do want to bring on our co-host and the editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine, Brody Levesque. Um Brody features um, the latest happenings going on in the world, and hopefully he's got a few of those today for us. Hey, Brody. Hey, Rob, and good
1: afternoon, good day, good morning to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for being here. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to start on kind of a a sad note and a note of caution. Um, the Los Angeles County Medical Examiner's Office uh, released its findings in the death of 18-year-old actor uh, and daytime uh, Emmy nominee Tyler Sanders, uh, and it was uh, published by uh, the celebrity uh, webzine TMZ, which had obtained and then uh, published the actual report. Um, according to the Los Angeles County Medical Examiner, uh, young Tyler died of an overdose of fentanyl, um, and apparently the chronicle of events Uh, was that he texted a friend of his the night before he passed away mentioned that he was using that drug Um, the next day the friend attempted to call him couldn't find him Uh, the LAPD uh, did a welfare check and uh, found him unresponsive in his bed actually dead in his bed Uh, he lived alone. and then the report also detailed that there were other illicit drugs found not only in the room where he died Uh, but also uh, in the bathroom, and apparently the kid had a history of drug abuse, uh, which included opiates, uh, Xanax, mushrooms, and a few other things, but it was a fentanyl uh, that killed him. Um, In the last year, we have seen a sharp uptick in Los Angeles County and across the United States uh, in fentanyl-related deaths. In Los Angeles County, Dr. Barbara Ferreira, who's director of the L.A. County Public Health Department, uh, told us, being in the press, in a recent uh, press conference uh, that in Los Angeles County, fentanyl-related deaths had increased uh, by 1,280% from 2016 to just this last year. Uh, Across the United States, we are seeing a lot more of these deaths. The uh, Drug Enforcement Administration, uh, their laboratory in Arlington, Virginia, found that in terms of abuse, particularly in the fake prescription pills that were analyzed in just this last year, six out of ten of those pills were now containing a potentially lethal dose of fentanyl. Now, this is an increase from 2021, when four out of ten were laced with fentanyl, uh, the head of the DEA, the DEA administrator, Ann Milligram, said this, more than half of the fentanyl-laced fake prescription pills being trafficked in communities across the country now contain a potentially deadly dose of fentanyl. These pills are being mass-produced by the cartels in Mexico, and they are being uh, manufactured with the fentanyl itself coming directly from China. Director Milgram added, never take a pill that wasn't described directly to you, never take a pill from a friend, and never, ever take a pill bought on social media. One pill is dangerous, one pill uh can kill. We uh, got a photograph that I used to illustrate some of our uh, articles at the Blade uh from the dea laboratory and it shows a lincoln penny and then the amount of fentanyl needed to kill a person which would uh basically fit on the tip of abe lincoln's nose on a u.s penny so it doesn't take a lot to uh kill a human being uh los angeles police chief michael moore said in a separate interview with me the proliferation and prescription drug lookalike show that four out of the 10 pills are recovered by the LAPD containing a fatal amount of fentanyl. The thing that's really important to note here is that the younger generation are getting these pills on Instagram, TikTok, and Snap. That's, this is social media uh, has become the driving force. And these kids don't understand just how dangerous uh, fentanyl is, which... You know, obviously in this case, it took the life of 18-year-old Tyler, but there are a lot of Tylers out there, and this is why it's really critically important. I know that um, we have a tendency sometimes to just say, well, you know, this is an ongoing problem. Well, no, it's not. It's become a crisis in the LGBTQ community, particularly among our youth. uh, It's becoming a much bigger problem. So... Today, I just wanted, you know, again, to remind our listeners that, you know, this is a very, very serious thing. And the next time you pull a penny out of your pocket, take a hard look at it, because anything that would fit on the end of Abe Lincoln's nose quite literally will
0: kill you. So uh, with that, I'm going to shift. So, Brody, Brody, one thing, though, with the numbers on the fentanyl desk and everything else, why aren't more Mm – People doing about it? Why aren't the LA or the um, LGBTQ advocacy or organizations prioritizing this more? We just don't hear about it that much. We hear about COVID deaths, but sentinel deaths are are significantly high as well. Why are why is it being so quiet in the media around it?
1: I think that you know, and this is something that those of us in the media are desperately trying to change the conversation. I mean, I will give a shout out. Uh, to Mayor uh, Seppi Schein, Council Member Lauren Meister, uh, John Erickson uh, at the West Hollywood City Council. West Hollywood has been very aggressive uh, in getting fentanyl uh, test strips into the nightclubs uh, in the Rainbow District. Um, this, The City of New York, Mayor Adams and his folks have also been doing the same thing uh, the problem is that there is not enough attention uh, being paid to this. Uh, once I realized that, uh, as the editor in chief of the Los Angeles Blade, I set up a special section called the Fentanyl Crisis, and tragic stories like Tyler's will begin to get told more often. I'm already right. covering what the DEA is doing, and you know, um, we've had a, I've had a conversation with Dr. Mark Galley. Who is California's uh, Health and Human Sec- Health and Human Services Secretary? That's a mouthful. Uh, and Dr. Galley uh, is also starting to focus in on this. I think that um, the biggest problem is parents don't realize that this is going on, and it's an age's-old problem. The difference being is this drug is a one-time, and you've had it. Drug. This isn't one of those drugs where it becomes a build-up addiction, and the whole nine-yard rigmarole that goes with it, this thing kills out the gate. And if you get right. the wrong pill with the wrong dosage in it, you're gone. And there is, fortunately, uh, schools now becoming very, very aware of this. In the tri-state area around New York, in Los Angeles, and other schools, as a matter of fact, my colleagues at NBC News just did a piece last night on this, Some high schools are starting to put Norcan, which is uh, a counteractive um, uh, to the overdose. uh, And literally one school is putting it in the same type of break glass boxes that you would see for fire alarms. And the whole purpose is, of course, Norcan is the only drug, counter drug, that would stop the fentanyl overdose from taking someone's life. But you have to be right on top of it. Uh so it right. it goes to education, it goes to, you know, awareness. I, I think it's the responsibility, certainly it's a responsibility, um you know, for myself and, and my fellow colleagues and journalists, uh, to get the word out there. It's just there's not enough right. uh education out there right now, Rob, and unfortunately said I know not of publicity.
0: Yeah. And and um for my ignorance, what when you said they, they're putting Out uh, Fentanyl test strips What are the test strips testing How are those
1: used Fentanyl uh, can be Dispensed as a powder It can be dispensed in pill form It can be uh, dispensed uh, A la Like you could have it on Like um, A a postage stamp type thing Like they used to do with Lysergic acid dimethylene Better known as LSD uh, And some other drugs the test strips are to test drinks because there has been documented incidences uh, across the United States and in West Hollywood uh, where fentanyl had been slipped into someone's drink. Um, mm-hmm. It's been literally used as a date rape. The, the, the problem is, though, that, you know, the long dosage or the wrong
0: amount, and you'll kill
1: whoever it is. The purpose of the fentanyl strip is to detect its
0: presence. Right. Got it. Okay, very, uh, pardon the expression, sobering um, information there. Sure. Any other newsworthy things before we uh, move on?
1: I I just wanted uh, to uh, talk a little bit about uh, Congressman-elect George Santos, Republican from Long Island and Queens, this never-ending saga with him we've taken to call in the chronicles of George Santos. This 34-year-old, Uh, Won an election against another gay candidate in New York's third congressional. And over the last, basically the Christmas holiday period, virtually every news operation, including my own, has been picking at this guy's background because it turns out that his entire background is fabricated. He's lied about, well, pick a topic. Um, And now there are calls uh, for him to step down. Uh, including from uh, House Democrats' leadership in the House. Uh, he's currently under investigation as of yesterday by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New York, the Republican District Attorney for Nassau County, and Donnelly, and New York State Attorney General Letitia James and her office. Uh, and again, they're looking at his business dealings, and, uh, looking hard at, you know, where his money came, uh, where, where his money came from, uh, New York State Senator Anna Kaplan, uh, who represents, um, part of the third congressional district in Albany, uh, has also urged investigation into his business dealings. Um, the major point being is, you know, the guy's giving his campaign $700,000. He doesn't have any real income to speak of. He has this consultancy agency or business, and there's just a whole bunch of things that go with it. And The bad part about this clown uh, is that he, uh, I mean, the lies are just, there's a ton of them. Uh, Probably the most egregious lies um, were that he had four employees in a company he runs in Florida that were murdered at Pulse. Absolutely not true. Uh, The next why out that got everybody going is, you know, oh, my grandparents escaped the Nazi Holocaust. Come to find out that his grandparents were born in Brazil, didn't escape on anywhere and wait for it, are Catholic. When he was confronted by former Congresswoman Tulsi uh, Gabbard yesterday, or Tuesday rather, on the Fox television show Tucker Carlson, uh, he actually said, well, I didn't say I was Jewish. I said I was Jew-ish. I, I kid you not. He actually said that on air. Of course, naturally, right, right. pundits and everyone else kind of jumped on that one. So um, at the end of the day, he is basically a scumbag. Uh, the question now remains as to whether or not the House Republican leadership, since they're going to be the majority, uh, are going to seat this guy. Uh, so far, there's been radio silence out of Leader McCarthy and the other three or four leadership uh, roles in the House, we think part of that may be connected to the fact that McCarthy's in the fight of his life to become the next House speaker, and Santos may have pledged to him. So it, there's a bunch of political right. uh, interest well, that goes with this.
0: Yeah, for um, LGBTQ-specific interest, because a lot of mainstream media covers a lot of the things uh, you just spoke about it. although i had not heard about the pulse um nightclub shooting thing that that that's a new one for me um but the other one is you know he has made claims that he has been out as a gay man for 10 years um although it was discovered that um he was actually married to a woman and divorced her in 2018 um he mm-hmm. supposedly has a husband although you're reporting as you have not been able to find a marriage license for that marriage in the state of New York. Um, I did see a picture of the alleged husband from um, an event that he attended at Mar-a-Lago in Florida, and the guy he is with looks like a younger version of him, and I swear it looks more like a cousin than it does a husband. But um his whole MO in being a out gay man uh for for ten ten years is uh that he was never condemned in the Republican Party for being gay. Um, but you know, in the gay community is condemned for being a Republican, that old saw. And um it turns out you know, if if he was gay, he certainly wasn't in anything that was the the gay community there. So, mm-hmm. Anyway, one last uh, thing point, before yeah. we
2: jump on. Or,
1: yeah. yeah, one last thing before we bring our guest on. Um, to our listeners, um, the, this documentary is kind of interesting from a multitude of levels. But for any of you who are fans of Alice Osman and the Netflix seesaw film series Heartstopper, which has taken the world by storm over this last year, I need to point out that Heartstopper originally was a web comic on Tumblr and Tapas, and it was a graphic novel style, which has now since been published in print. But it is legacy to what we're about to talk about today. So let's take a let's take a moment to consider without what we're uh, what our guest has. Uh, put in documentary form, we wouldn't even have Heartstopper, Rob. <laughs> okay,
0: <laughs> I'm just laughing, Brody. Because um, yeah, the the film No Straight Lines is, is so impactful on on gay history. And if our leaders, our listeners can't tell, Brody is in 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 particular a huge Heartstopper fan. So um, yeah. <laughs> that that's where all roads lead for Brody. <laughs> so, <laughs> kudos. Um, so, anyway, we are going to be talking about No Straight Lines, which is a film that tells the story of five scrappy and pioneering cartoonists who depicted everything from the AIDS crisis, coming out, same-sex marriage themes of race, gender, and disability. They tackled the humor and queer lives in a changing world, and the everyday pursuit of love. Sex and community. Um, The work that they've put together over their careers is funny, smart, profound. It provides a unique and uncensored window into LGBTQ lives from the 1970s onward. And it began at a time when there was no other genuine queer storytelling in popular culture. Um, And with that, I'd like to welcome to the show the um, filmmaker. And the director and producer of No Straight Lines, Vivian Kleinman. Vivian, welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me today. It's a wonderful opportunity to be here and talk with you.
0: Uh, it's it's absolutely thrilling. I absolutely loved this film. It um, you kind of got me on it because you know there as you go into the film you've got you've got um, you know these these very talented artists. And at one point, um, two of them are sitting out having a nice cup of tea, and it's a very quiet, comfortable, conversational type film. But there are some emotional parts of this film that are just like, whoa! I, it just um, it's it's um, these things. The film themes of the film dwell up and just take a hold of you. Um, what what inspired you to go in this direction? To make this film.
2: Well, first of all, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you uh, were so engaged with uh, the storytelling. Um, you know, I had uh, really, in, in as 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 I was coming out, Alison Bechtel's uh series Psyches Watch Out" for was like uh, a lifeline. It was like a life support system. we were all waiting anxiously to find out what happened uh, in the next installment to our what happened to our favorite characters that she was uh, depicting. Um, But then I wasn't so much connected with comics for a while until um, uh, uh, Justin Hall, who is uh, himself uh, a queer comic book artist and an expert in the history of of queer comics, um, uh, linked up with a friend of his, Greg Cerroda, a filmmaker. And they actually started this. Uh, idea of doing a film based on Justin's book, of uh, The Same Name, The Straight Lines. And um, at one point, they kind of got stuck, and they asked me if I wanted to get involved uh, in the project, so I went, hmm, I don't know, I'm not so sure. Uh, but when I saw, uh, uh, when I attended the first gathering of queer comic book artists, uh, that was held in New York City. Uh, I walked into the hallway, and I looked into the space, the convention space, and I was completely mesmerized by what I saw. There was uh, a young person with chartreuse-dyed colored hair, standing engaged, talking with an over-dye with a paunched stomach and balding head and... Uh, uh, an, an, an ivy-league shirt that needed to be ironed. <laughs> and all around them was, was the whole panoply of queer people, like the whole, the whole arc of who we are, from gender nonconforming to the GQ gentleman, as it were. And they were all engaged in conversation, and they were all smiling and happy to be together. And they went, oh, my God. This is like not the stereotype that I was having uh, of uh, artists. Um, My, and especially of comic book artists. My, uh, uh, the stereotype that I had in mind, my image was uh, of like robbery crumb and the underground comics, you know, kind of snarly and snarky and um, sarcastic (laughs) and grumpy and uh, more comfortable hiding in their attic or their underground space, you know, by themselves, isolated. And this is like diametrically the opposite. And I immediately got it. Aha. This is a story about community, a story about our lives. And it's a story that's very affirming. Uh, you know, over the course of those two days of that conference, I heard lots of stories um, of, you know, the queer experience in America and, um, you know, the pain and, and the angst coming out to many people and the joy of uh, you know, finding true love, or at least finding sex. <laughs> um, and uh, I saw it once, I'd you know, I, I, I like to say it was like a casting director's dream. Uh, the people were engaging storytellers, they were full of uh, new perspectives on what I thought I already understood about the world. And um, I knew at that point that it would be a great uh, film. I also knew there would be a challenge Uh, in terms of storytelling, but we'll dive into that
0: later on. Yeah. (laughs) um, I want to dial back a little bit, because you have been doing this for literally decades. What originally enthralled you about making documentaries and films?
2: Oh, yeah, it's a good question. I was promised cocaine and limos. (laughs) <laughs> and I fell for it <laughs> and did sucker, you get any? there's a sucker born every day <laughs>
0: um,
2: you know I, I had been working in a museum I was being I my background is in uh, art history and uh, one day uh, a filmmaker walked into the museum saying he had an idea for a film and it uh, turned out that I knew a lot about the subject and we ended up uh, sitting down, lighting a joint, writing proposals, and uh, out came the first film. And in that process, uh, I got introduced to, uh, back then, 16-millimeter filmmaking. And uh, I just loved it. I loved the combination of image uh, image, and words together. I loved the opportunity to travel and to meet people that I otherwise would have no business talking, kind of what we were saying at the intro to this. Program, you know, that special uh, position that we have to get to introduce ourselves to folks and invite them into our space, be invited into their space, and get to know people that otherwise would have no business talking to.
0: Yeah, definitely. In fact, one of the things watching you No know, Straight Lines as somebody who does tell other people's stories, I really found intrigue and fascination with what they do as a, another kind of storyteller. Uh, Um, you know, I wish I could draw like that, which I can't. Um, uh, well, I can draw a little bit, but anyway, I can't, I'm I'm not going to go into that, um, that genre. Um, what, what did you learn from making this film as a story professional storyteller yourself?
2: Uh, yeah. Well, uh, Gosh, there's so much to be gleaned from this particular uh, community, and I really underscore the word uh, community, but that for me is really the the takeaway uh, uh, of the film. Uh, the notion that many of us are isolated, um, uh, many of us have been expelled from our homes or uh, ran away as fast as we could from the nightmare of where we grew up, or just wanted to, you know, continue on our journeys and 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 learn and grow, but. Um, For me, in particular, it was about the formation of uh, community and connection and and the enjoyment of each other's work and and encouragement. Um, I found that to be particularly uh, unique and inspiring.
0: um, One of the quotes around the film um, by Tracy Brown of the L.A. Times was one of the underlying takeaways of No Straight Lines is that the history of queer comics is a history of resilience and being true to who you are. And in the film itself, Howard Cruz is starting a um, gay comics publication called Gay Comics, very unique title, Um, but he sends out a letter to a bunch of um, uh, queer, what he perceives anyway, as potentially queer uh, comic developers and there's a quote that stood out to me. And to me, you know, and this is just my viewing of the film, but um, this was sort of like the pinnacle for me in the whole film. Um, it's time to take some risks in the service of truth. And that was his call to action to the community to step out and identify and tell their stories. Um, talk to me more about that concept of, and that heart of the film,
2: well, I just love that you are focused on on that sentence because it really is one of the epiphany moments uh, in the whole narrative. because um, you know, when Howard made that statement, he was like it was straight from the heart, it was so uh, important, so vital um, a comment, and it's really what propelled him throughout his career, which culminated in, in his receiving uh, the Eisner, award, the top, you know, the Academy Award for the Comics Club. Um, so, yeah, and I think it also matched uh, his own life. Um, at one point, he had been walking down the path of uh, becoming uh, a successful person in, in Mad- Madison Avenue uh, graphics design world and, you know, wearing a, a tie and a suit going to, to work. And then at some point, he realized that uh, he was going to express himself. And um, get involved in that anthology that you were just describing, gay Thomas. And he knew that he was risking his career. He, at that time in 1980, uh, he easily could have lost his uh, whole entire uh, profession, uh, had uh, by by serving as the editor of that uh, anthology. So uh, that's a big deal. That's not small. That's that's like. You know, coming out to your family times a thousand if you don't have a trust fund. Uh, So I kind of feel like him taking Howard Cruz taking that risk himself um, really uh, speaks to uh, a new generation. I hope in the film it speaks to a new generation of the power of self representation, the enormous power of self expression of uh, uh, working through your own uh, uh, dark demons through art or through uh, uh, writing, through, uh, through novels or through whatever it is, even if it's you know, the gardening, But somehow, you know, feeling that um, there's a the possibility of uh, taking control of one's life, of um, being authentic and taking that risk uh, which might mean letting go of the side of the pool and but continuing and swimming in the footage to get a crappy metaphor <laughs> beyond where I should. Um,
0: yeah, so no. I think for
2: me that that you really you really test on the core, uh, sentence in the film. Quite honestly.
0: Well, he you know it's I mean it's really astounding who he was. I mean it's you know his his part of the film and the interviews with him were fascinating, but it was also then telling that other other artists in the film who were also landmark um, comic artists referred back to him. I mean, he, he obviously right. was like the, the, and I think you've termed him as the godfather of queer comics. And that, that is not a light title. I mean, that is completely <laughs> accurate as who so he was. I did notice that at the end of the film that, that he had passed away. Did he? Did he get to see your finished film?
2: Now, Rob, that's supposed to make me cry
0: so early in the interview. Oh, uh, sorry. That, well, it's only he, fair. He you did it can- to somebody in your film.
2: <laughs> fair, fair. Um, he had cancer. Uh, it was uh, not the fastest of um, experiences, but also was not dragged on for too long. The plan was he was going to be released from the hospital on a certain Sunday afternoon, and he was going to watch um, a pretty far-long rough cut uh, on Monday. But sadly, he passed away at... um, He he never made it out of the hospital that Sunday. He passed away that night, and he did not uh, get to see the film. But he was a huge, huge fan and supporter and always had time for questions, and always I would ask him to... uh, Dive into his archives of work and try to find something to me that I wanted. And he would always put down his his pen or his mouse or his computer <laughs> and, and help. That's the way he was with everybody. I tell that anecdote because each and every person who had some interaction with Howard would probably say the same thing about him. And let me just add one more comment as an aside. Um, describing how my attending that... First, conference of peers and comics um, really impacted me, and drew me into the subject as uh, a filmmaker. But it was also seeing one particular uh, comic that he, you know, he in fact had drawn that grabbed my heart even before that, which was um, it's a comic about uh, it's a coming out story, and uh, the main character has written that letter to his parents. He seals it, he seals the envelope. He's goes outside in the snow one winter evening, he puts it in the mailbox in the corner, and all, and he, all of a sudden he has that horrible sense of remorse, and he wraps his mm. arms around the mailbox, and goes, oh, my God, what have I done? And for me, that moment of, like, oh, my God, I sent this email out and I should have waited and, and uh, not sent it, or I should have written something that was a little nicer rather than one so hostile, maybe, to a next level. Um to me, that moment was not just about the queer experience of that character coming out to the family, um, but it was really about all of us. You know, we've all had some kind of moment of regret having sent that letter or sent that email or said something and misspoke, and I really felt that it captured that, uh, that experience, that feeling uh, that is shared by so many, and in doing that and including that in a film, uh, I hope to
0: invite um, uh, the straight community to um, see us a little bit differently. Yeah, no, I hope so, because that that also stood out, because you do have that in the film, um, and that had a huge impact on me as well. Uh, and I do hope that people in the straight community can get that. I don't know that they will, because it is a very unique part of coming out is that moment whatever the medium is that you come out by once the thing is out of your mouth once you have <laughs> said it once you have communicated it it there is no bringing it back you cannot right. reverse the tape and go back to your life the way it was before you came out it is it is like a really profound Experience of LGBTQ people that that when we come out, and I I honestly don't know if straight people have that.
2: Well, I think uh, obviously they don't have the same experience, but uh, I truly believe that uh, the notion of having said something and then feeling like oh my god I don't really have solid ground to stand on and deal with the backlash that that's going to yeah. generate. I think that's shared, like when my older sister told my father that she was having you know, sex uh, straight, very straight, older sister, and he called her a whore. You know? <laughs> yeah. You know, I suspect that, that she had that kind of sense of uh, regret. She may have had that kind of regret. You know, and of course, it's not the same as, you know, for us coming out. But what's amazing to me, Rob, is um, the reception that the film has received. Uh, outside of the queer community. I knew that the queer film festivals would grab it and make it um, and put a spotlight on the film. Um, It's good quality storytelling with good stories being told. Mm -hmm. But I was filmed that the film was invited to premiere at uh, Tribeca Film Festival, one of the country's, of the world's, top premiere uh, festivals. And then from there we just went um, to all the top festivals around the world, really. And um, I, I couldn't have been more surprised and delighted by the reception. I'm, I'm saying this not just to brag, um, but I'll take a moment to brag, but really <laughs> it's just about um, the engagement that the film yeah. has. It's really a tribute to the um, artists that are in the film as much as uh, you know, good quality uh, storytelling. And, uh, well, the storytelling really exciting to see everybody's fun.
0: Yeah, the storytelling is superb. So nothing, nothing against that. I—that does not surprise me though, because from my experience watching the film, I was taken by the medium itself. The, um, because you know I've watched, and we've had people on the show here. I've had. You know, uh, filmmakers doing films about the LGBT community. I've had you know actors, um, you know, have, have books and and read stories about LGBTQ people. But in this film, and you know, I grew up with comics, comic books. You know, it's when when I was a kid, and we won't talk about what year that was. Um, you walked into Seven Eleven, and there was a rack full of comics and comic books, and I mean they were super, super prevalent all over. So I wasn't right. it's not like I'd never seen a comic book before. But looking at the work of the people that you've spotlighted telling LGBTQ stories, I was actually astounded because I was seeing our stories told in a way that were so multidimensional from what I've experienced in other mediums telling our stories, where I read a book right. – it's all written, there's no visual expression. You watch a film, it's like you're watching the character and you're going, okay, does he really look like a gay man or does he not,
2: you know, and oh, my God, (laughs) they're pretending these are what all gay
0: men do and they don't, but it's like the uniqueness of what these artists were doing in their work I think was enthralling, and it was introducing, even though I'm gay, it's like it was introducing me to a perspective I didn't know. So I could see people who were, who were not even gay being told these stories and being, because they're human, um, just being drawn in. It was just, it was, it was really fascinating. I, I do want to dovetail into, because I, I made a comment um, about me um, making you cry and that, that it was um, fair revenge, because right <laughs> in the middle of your film, um, in an interview with Jen Camper, Um, you make her cry. Um, Tell me about that, because that was uh, actually one of the most poignant moments of the whole film.
2: Yeah. Yeah, well, it's curious that um, you it that I made her cry, because, to be honest, uh, to know Jen Camper, an amazing uh, Lebanese-American artist, and uh, toward the force. (laughs) She's her own force field. Uh, You would never expect her to be... um, uh, uh, with somebody who she hardly knew. You know, I, I, we had met a few times, but we were not friends. Um, she's a tough cookie. She's a self-described badass mm-hmm. feminist. And um, But we were talking about, at a certain point, the film does take a turn from the humorous uh, to the more somber. And we were talking about her experience uh, in the 80s and early 90s with um, AIDS. And in particular, she was describing um, queer artists' responses to the AIDS crisis, which was really interesting to hear. And a wonderful opportunity to show the the range of voices, literally from people cracking jokes to, of course, the devastation of losing um, a dear one or just uh, the whole situation is so much worse. To the entire world, um, the amazing part of that moment is that um, uh, Jen started to uh, cry, and she was um, she got up and she uh, left the room where they were filming, and without a word being spoken, my cinematographer Andy Black and the sound recorders, uh, without a word said, kept recording the whole time. Mm -hmm. About a minute later, Jen walks back into the room, sits down, and begins uh, responding to whatever discussion we were having. Um, And um, it's a tribute to having a high professional crew that knew to keep the camera rolling, to keep uh, the the space open for something to happen that we had no idea might happen. That was part one. And part two is, as a filmmaker, you know, uh, I, want, I, I want to keep my audience. And um, we all hear how uh, the attention span of young people today is short. Sure. And so you're supposed to have fast cuts. And that, as I just described, that moment lasts a full minute before Jen can't and sit down again. Um, I decided to leave it uncut. I decided to leave it in its entirety um, and uh, take a chance. And, um, as it turns out, when I, uh, showed the film, uh, just, uh, like three weeks ago to a junior, uh, of community college class, and I asked them if I, if they thought I should, um, shorten that scene, uh, to accommodate the new generation, and they all screamed, <laughs> don't touch it. Uh, yeah. and, uh, it just, you know, it just shows how, like, somebody says something and then it somehow becomes, like, it gets echoed and then becomes considered a truism when maybe it really isn't a truism. Uh, so that was a very important experience for me which, as a filmmaker, which is to kind of follow my gut and um, my experience as a certain as a time.
0: I love that. I love every bit of that and what you just described because it's the, the moment is important in the film. It is so human, so real, um, and I am not – I, I mean, I see the, the – I, I think people are conditioned on this TikTok-type stuff, you know, yeah. of the fast cuts and all that, but I think that's trendy. I don't think it's real. I think, you know, that humans are capable of the longer Good. attention span and there's plenty of work out there all over that is, is pushes the longer attention span. And, um, you know, and I, and I think it's... It, gets, it,
2: it gets looked at and read and, and enjoyed and appreciated. Yeah,
0: yeah so I, it's I, like, I'm, one more, I'm one all Can I add one more comment
2: about that scene? Absolutely. One more comment about that? is normally, uh, for most of the editing process, that scene was left without music. It was just the silence of the room the sound of the radiator in her New York booking appointment. Um, and also, by the way, the sound of a siren going by outside, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Uh, but at a certain point, I realized that it was too hard to transition from uh, there to the next uh, story in the film, which was about uh, one of the responses to the AIDS crisis was generating wings and the anger and the fury that happened in this punk culture. Um, and in order to, to transition from that one section to another, uh, it, was, it was curious that the only way we could make it work was by having not, not just some music, but a very loud kind of music. So uh, I just point that out as a, a little filmmaker's observation.
0: Yeah, it's, that that I would have missed just because I just got carried along by it. So. Yeah, it's like it it the 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 scene moves smoothly on um into the next portion which you know it's you know to to your credit. You you're just and and um Jen's personality does come through. I mean you do get that this is not a normal emotional, you know, um, you know, cry, cries on a dime person. You you right. really get that this this nerve has deeply felt. And it's it's also um, seen throughout the work. I mean, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the, the comics that are depicted are sweet and or funny or light or you know, they're edgy and all this. But there are a lot that are deeply serious and deeply poignant. And I think that's also part of the surprise is that mm-hmm. this is an art form that isn't you know you you know, I always thought of it like because the, some of the comics that I used to read were they used to do comics that were like comic depictions of classic books um like yeah, Dracula right. or you know it's like it was the comic version, yeah. and you read that and you got the the gist I mean it was almost like um close notes in comic form type <laughs> thing, and you know, but it's like you lose sight of the fact that there is a these are a unique way to tell a story with very different aesthetics and and input from the artist to you. Um, and, and with that, I want to kind of pivot a little bit to um, Alison Bechtel and her graphic um, wow. uh, novel that she ended up doing, which turned into be incredibly successful. Um, tell us a little bit about her.
2: Well, um, the, the the curious thing about um, us starting to talk about Allison for me is that I kind of, as I was listening to you, I kind of was thinking that really uh, the film is is one way I think about the film is how it works in service of understanding uh, how Allison came to be Allison, in the sense of uh, Allison how Allison's work came to be and how she was influenced by. Uh, I, I started off like that, Robert Crumb in underground comics, and she was influenced by Howard Cruz. And she not just his incredible artwork, but also the voice that he was giving uh, to the um, queer experience in this country. Uh, so Alison's work has, uh, so the, the film really kind of can be seen as um, a summary of the forces that led to Alison Deco's uh uh, one, one aspect of her success. Um, Allison's work, it's impossible to describe how important and impactful it was for all of us lesbians, in particular um, in the 80s and 90s. Um, but seeing her work, uh, by uh, engaging with her work you know, in filmmaking and seeing how the work evolved from very simple, single frame, you know, as she says, New Yorker magazine kind of uh, comics to much more complex storytelling with uh, braided uh, stories and characters. Um, It's actually incredible. It's incredible to see how with one little brush stroke you can have such expression on a character's uh, face, for example, or a gesture with a hand. Um, So, Yeah. We caught her at a time when she was enormously busy. She was on deadline with her uh, last publication, which came out, um, publication came out uh, this past spring, and she said we could only have one day of filming, <laughs> so <she laughs> one day of filming with somebody who's a like top, top, <laughs> uh, top of everybody's mind when you, when you, say, the, you say it's queer comics, um, I did ask if we could arrive a day early and film so exteriors of uh, her house in, in uh Vermont. She lives in the mountains of Vermont. And she uh, uh completely agreed to that. And of course, um she's a very generous and caring um person. She actually cooked dinner, uh, you know, for the crew uh that that first night. It was uh very sweet of her. And um Yeah, and with Allison, too, you know, there was a moment when here it is a person who has been interviewed a trillion times uh, by top, you know, interviewers of the country, uh, Terry Gross among them, Uh, and I thought, you know, my God, what else could I do that would be different? Um, But as it turns out, um, there was a moment when uh, she had answered a question, and it reminded me of something she had said earlier. And I kind of waited a little beat i loved silence uh, and um then I asked a follow up question that she hadn't expected. I don't remember what it was i'm sorry but uh <laughs> I could tell that she was i could tell that it it was i had i had um, strung together two thoughts that she hadn't thought of before, and it disturbed her immensely in a good way um but she also was getting a little teary-eyed, and at that moment, I realized I could put on the uh, hat of a 60-minute, you know, kind of producer and go for the gold and make the person cry. That's what they aimed for. Uh, um, but, you know, that's not the kind of film that I was doing. I didn't need to right. disturb her more. Um, the film isn't a, a, bi- a biography of Alison Bechtel. I wish it had been. That would be a great story to do. Um Uh, So I stopped. I didn't go any further. I just let it um, rest at that moment. And um, there's a little bit of that in the film. That little moment is in the film. And you get a taste of uh, the range of emotional experiences. And after all, that's what I go for as a filmmaker. The reason I spend a lot of time and effort and and miss opportunities of of enjoying time with my sweetie and my (laughs) friends You do more than just a chronology or a flat linear, mm-hmm. who did what when kind of a film. Uh, my goal as a filmmaker is to take the viewer on some kind of an emotional journey. And there's going to be ups and there's going to be down, And there'll be laughter. There's always laughter and there's always the somber. There's always the humorous and the somber. But um, it's not about uh, who did what when kind of stuff that I think is tedious. Uh,
0: no, and you certainly accomplished that. I mean, the stories are poignant. Um, you know, Alison, you know, the story of her father that gets told in the film by way of her talking about the, the graphic novel that she did around it, it ended up, the novel itself ended up being picked up as a musical, and she won a Tony Award for that. I mean, that path alone is absolutely fascinated, fascinating. Fascinating. And then yeah. we got Rupert Kinnard who um, black American cartoonist who created a character called the Brown Bomber and publishing it in his uh, college paper. And then he had the character came out come out in the, the comic strip and people pounding on his door going, Wait a minute, does this mean you're gay too? I mean that <laughs> huge. Huge stories. I just, you know, it's the film is so completely rich, and we're starting to run out of time here. I just, um, it, it is absolutely must-see. Um, just, you know, Vivian, for housekeeping, where can people see this and um, and get more of it?
2: Well, I'm very excited and honored uh, to report that uh, it will be broadcast on national public television starting January 23rd. Uh, and um, going on for another three months. So you can either tune in, uh, with uh, pay attention to, to your local public television station and see when they will be scheduling the film, but it should be available uh, on the National PBS website um, uh, under the Independent Lens series. Uh, that's the name of the, the series on National PBS that... Uh, the film will be screened together. So No Straight Lines, Independent Lens. You Google that, you'll, you'll land in the right spot,
0: I'm sure. Great. And then the website uh, for it is nostraightlinesthefilm.com. And, Vivian, if people want to find out about more of your films, because there are other films that I wanted to ask you about, but we don't have time. Um, you have a fascinating um, uh, portfolio. Uh, how do people find more about you and what's going on for you mm-hmm. in the future?
2: It's, you can find me easily at no straight lines, the film dot com. Um the spelling of my name is often gets jangled, uh, so we'll, we'll leave it at that. But that will lead you to uh my website and, and other work. But I'm I'm just very filled with what you're doing. I, I can't I can't tell you how important you know this, this show is and the kind of voice that you are bringing You know, the um, it's 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 really vital uh source of news for all of us.
0: Well, thank you so much, and thank you for what you do, because right back at you. I mean, this film gives (laughs) people a glimpse into a whole genre. I guarantee you they are unaware of. Um, I'm jealous of the past, because I wish I had known about more of the the gay comic world that was out there, Um, because I, going through all that, would have loved to have read um, this material and and have been part of that. And um, I was out living the real life part, but not... not yeah, well, not we hope, on the website, we hope, to, we,
2: we hope to pay, uh, post uh, um, links to some of the artists' work so you can uh, get your hands on it.
0: Oh, excellent. That's that's so awesome. And I'm afraid we are out of time today. So, again, I want to uh, thank uh, Vimea Kleinman. Thank you for joining us. Thank you more for who you are and what you are producing. It is absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Definitely catch the film. It is no straight line. Watch your PBS stations um, so you can take part in that. I wanna thank Bro- Brody Lebec for what he does um, as editor of the Los Angeles Blade magazine.
2: Um, it is an
0: important piece that you should be reading every day. It is authentic, it is um, original journalism and it is very focused on the LGBTQ community. So definitely check that out. And I want to thank Brody for his work on this show um, because he's absolutely instrumental. And for the rest of the team here, thank you for tuning in. Please tell your friends to subscribe. We will be back again next week, I think. We may not be because of the holiday, but we'll see. Um, But if we are, it will be an absolutely incredible show. So thank you, and until next time, we'll see you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio.